Today's show is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com slash space. That's tryexpressvpn.com slash space for three months free with a one-year package. Visit tryexpressvpn.com slash space to learn more. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9... Ignition sequence start. Space Nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space Nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello again and thank you for joining us on this, the latest episode of Space Nuts, the podcast about space with nuts on top. My name's Andrew Dunkley and with me as always is Professor Fred Watson. Hello, Fred. You see, the problem with that, Andrew, is that space doesn't have a top. No. So, and because that, up it's or down relative. is not defined in space. So no. maybe the space is on top of the nuts. Who knows? But yeah, well, the answer when, is, I yes, think, I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm, I'm quite well too. Yeah, in, in talking to um, astronauts, uh, they all have different interpretations of up. Yes, that's right. Some of them feel more comfortable with their head pointed to Earth and others feel more comfortable with their feet pointing to Earth. And you don't know it till you get up there, apparently. Which way you prefer. Yeah. Yeah. It's a strange but phenomenon. It would be, yeah, especially if you put the nuts on it as well. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think they'd stay there. No, probably not. Mm. Now, we are going to talk about a massive gas giant exoplanet uh, with a little bit of a mystery attached to it. It's got a gap in its rings. And they don't know why. They thought they did, but now they don't think that's the reason, so it could be something else. But there's another reason for, for looking what, uh, at this planet and, uh, and potential moons because, um, yeah, we'll, we'll get to that. Don't, don't want to give it away too early. Uh, and a significant gamma ray burst that was um, discovered earlier this year um, is uh, also rather significant. I think it's um, the first one ever observed, uh, if I read that correctly. And we are going to answer some questions about orbital resonances from Tony and the age of light. Bart is asking that question. That's a really fascinating uh, question. How old is light? And yeah, he's, he's put forward some thoughts and we'll see if we can tackle those on today's episode. Uh, but first, Fred, let's uh, talk about this um, massive gas giant. This is an exoplanet that is, uh, I mean, we think Jupiter's big, but um, this is a long way to the chemist shop, this one. <laughs> so uh, that's right. So we need to recap slightly on the story with this, because this is something that's caught me by surprise. I have to say, we mustn't let this go beyond these four walls, Andrew, but right. I didn't know about this. I didn't know about this um, planet, even though it was discovered actually by somebody I know, uh -huh. uh, Matt Kenworthy, five years ago. <laughs> uh, so even though it was published in the journals and everything, uh, somehow it, it, it eluded me. But yes, um, this is an object. It, it rejoices in the name of J1407b, which means it's the planet of a star called J1407, because we all stick a letter on the end, starting with B for the first planet. It's a bit odd, really. Yeah. Never mind. Well, A um, being the star, I assume. Yes, that's right. Exactly. Uh, so it's, uh, it was discovered by the transit method. That means the, the way uh, it, as it passed in front of its parent star, it dimmed the light of its parent star slightly, uh, and that allowed us to understand what... Uh, first of all, the existence of the planet, but also 
the fact that this planet is accompanied by an, an incredible set of rings that make Saturn... <laughs> They make Saturn look positively weedy, I have to say. Yeah. This is one <laughs> um, massive, massive planet. It is. So uh, going back to your comment to start with, uh, it's mass. Um, and, well, between 13 and 26 times the mass of Jupiter, which is a bit interesting because uh, in my understanding of um, the, 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 the stellar world or the stellar universe, anything bigger than 13 times the mass of Jupiter is likely to be a brown dwarf. Yeah. Because I remember we talked about that. So that, yeah, this, this right. one certainly falls within that realm. It does. And uh, indeed, in the earlier paper, the one that was published five years ago, the authors um, do actually suggest it could be a brown dwarf. Um, and a brown dwarf star is, it, the, the definition is, and the reason why it's all about 13 times the mass of Jupiter, is uh, if you've got an object bigger than that, the temperature it raises through gravitational collapse in its core is enough to start something called deut deuterium burning, which is a, a, a relatively low level of nuclear nuclear process. It's not the nuclear fusion that uh, that powers the sun, uh, and so the amount of energy it gives off is very, very small. Uh, we do know, though, that Jupiter itself actually radiates more energy uh, in the infrared than it receives from the sun. So in a sense, Jupiter is also um, uh, not quite a star, but <laughs> something uh, that, that's a little bit... It's, it's not a dead world by any means. So mm. this object, whether it's a planet or a brown dwarf, the thing that makes it really interesting is this gigantic set of rings around it which are actually um <laughs> well their distance they extend out to 120 million kilometers or about 75 million miles from the planet to the outer edge of these rings so and they, that they, is... they would almost reach earth if they were surrounding our sun exactly that's exactly right if you if you put them around the sun they will be well on the way to to, to the earth uh, we we orbit at 150 million kilometers from the sun so these are sort of yeah three quarters of the way there really yes. um and uh that is just amazing they were discovered um by the the same occult uh, transit method that the pla that the planet was discovered by, so this this dimming as the as the rings themselves pass in front of the star, um, you can you can untangle all all the details of that and model what you see. And it was this paper five years ago that recognised that it's got this enormous set of rings, which actually um, are quite opaque in places as well. You know, they 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 actually um, absorb something like 95% of the light of the star coming through them. So why is this object in the news again, apart from the fact that it is quite astonishing? Uh, because another paper has appeared recently. Once again, uh, it came actually from a, a UK-based uh, uh, astronomer based at the University of Lincoln, uh, and it was published in that great journal of the British astronomical world, the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society, uh, which is actually one of the leading journals in the world. And I, too, have published papers in there from time to time. Nice. Uh, yeah, a long time ago, uh, for at least for a first author paper. Um, the, uh, the journal paper talks about uh, modelling that has been done on this ring system, because what is known 
is that uh, roughly halfway out, there is a really significant gap in the rings of this world. And a gap like that in the rings of Saturn, for example, uh, is something we know occurs because of the presence of a satellite, a moon, uh, mm. sometimes outside the ring system, but in resonance with uh, the rings at that point. Again, something we'll come to, come to a, a little bit later on in this chat. Um, but, but usually um, a, ring a gap in a ring system uh, is symptomatic of there being a moon involved, either a big moon outside the rings that's sort of creating a gravitational gap, or sometimes a, a, a tiny moon within the rings. And that's, that's certainly true in Saturn's case. There are, there are moons within the rings themselves which create gaps. However, it seems that this is not the case, as you said. Uh, the, something else is causing this gap because the simulations that have been done in this new work uh, suggest that really nothing like uh, nothing like uh, one of these moons would actually create a stable gap in the uh, in the in the ring system. Very odd. Um, the, you know, when you see a gap like that, the first thing you think is, well, is there a moon somewhere doing it? And then this, uh, the author of this paper, Phil Sutton, University of Lincoln, he's done lots of simulations and comes to the conclude conclusion that there isn't one. Um, that basically uh, there is no um, moon that fits the bill. Um, it is possible that there is a moon that's actually within the, the rings themselves that could do it. Uh, we, as I said, we find those in the rings of Saturn, but that is something that has not been investigated by this, this researcher. So I think it's a story that is still ongoing. But of course, the reason why we're all interested in moons of these worlds yes is because they might offer somewhere where life could occur yeah because the the, um, the the rocky planets in the goldilocks zone are only part of the story for the potential for liquid life uh liquid water and therefore the potential for life we can't say absolutely water means life anymore after last week's discussion <laughs> yeah. but um a, a lot of these moons that uh orbit gas giants are getting a different effect outside the so-called Goldilocks zone and 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 can have liquid water. Yeah, that's right. And it's actually the, the, the gravitational pull of the, of the parent body itself. So if you've got a planet with a moon going around relatively close by, it's being compressed and tugged and pulled and pushed by the, by the gravity of the planet. And that tends to heat the interior. Of moons, and the classic example of that is Io or Io uh, in Jupiter's system, the nearest of the of the four bigger moons uh, to Jupiter, which is the most volcanically active body in the solar system because of its proximity to the planet. Now, something where you've got rings that extend, uh, you know, three quarters of the distance from the Earth to the Sun, uh, that's getting a long way from the parent planet, even though it's a really beefy one. You know, if it does weigh 20, or if it does have a mass of uh, 26 times the mass of Jupiter, that is very significant stuff. And it would have a significant gravitational effect on its on its uh, any moons that it might have. Mm. So, uh, yeah, it's an interesting speculation who knows what we might find one day on the moons of these gas giants. Yes, and I suppose if it's got uh, an ice moon or two orbiting, um, the potential is like we have uh, in our own solar system that they may have liquid oceans below their surfaces. Um, there, there are all sorts of possibilities. 
That's right. Absolutely. So, but the yeah, mystery but, remains as to yep. the gap in the rings, uh, but it may be a moon we haven't seen that's within the rings itself. That's the bottom line. Yes. All right. <laughs> we will watch with interest. There may be more on J1407B in the future here on Space Nuts. Now, let's take a little break and find out more about our sponsor, ExpressVPN, rated number one by Tech Radar. Uh, this is the one I use. I've been using it for a couple of years, and I love it. When I joined ExpressVPN, they were, they were brand new, uh, new to the market, but uh, I read a lot of reviews and did a lot of comparisons, and there was just something about their, their business model that I particularly liked and a couple of years down the track honestly can't complain their interface is very easy to use their their service is second to none uh, I've had to contact them a couple of times about um, certain things that I wanted to do and they were brilliant so you may be wondering why I do need a VPN at all it's all about privacy uh, do you really want big tech companies governments and others knowing uh, what's going on with your online activity. Even if you're having nothing to hide, it just feels downright creepy. Uh, I think you'll agree. And governments are getting more and more interested in what you're doing every day. And so, yeah, protecting your privacy is what VPN is all about. And how often do you uh, run across websites that you want to get information from only to find that they're geo-blocked? This is becoming an increasing problem, but ExpressVPN solves that problem for you. Uh, now, if you go to our special URL, you'll see quite a list of things this service can help you with, things you may never have thought of before. As I say, it's the one I use, secure, fast, and it just works. Uh, so protect yourself online today and find out more about how to get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com slash space. That's T-R-Y-E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash space for three months free with a one-year package. Try expressvpn.com slash space to learn more and you'll find the link details in the show notes and on our website. Now... Back to the show. Roger, you're live, sir, here also. Space Nuts. Now, uh, once again, I'd like to send out a big thank you to our patrons for supporting our podcast. Uh, you're going to start noticing bonus material popping up on the Patreon page. So if you would like to uh, be a part of that, uh, all you have to do is sign up. Go to patreon.com slash space nuts. And uh, our patrons have been sending us a lot of questions, Fred, and we're going to start tackling some of those and they will go directly to the Patreon page as bonus material. So patreon.com slash space nuts if you'd like to get in on that action. Uh, now, Fred, we're going to talk about a, um, a gamma ray burst. Now, we know a little bit about gamma ray bursts. Uh, they're pretty darn powerful things. Uh, they're so powerful they can knock the skin off a custard. Uh, but uh, this one particular gamma ray burst, a, a recent discovery, uh, I believe, now correct me if I'm wrong, was um, the first one observed? Is With this correct? energy. With this energy, right. Yeah, I knew that's... I was close. Yeah, you were close. That's all right. Close enough. <laughs> close but no cigar. Although this would probably light a cigar. Uh, almost, yes, it almost does at this distance. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so what are gamma ray bursts? They are bursts of gamma rays. Gosh, we know how to give... Yeah, we, we are adequate here. 
Yeah. As always. Um, which have been observed, actually, I think it was in the 1970s when they started being observed. It's an interesting story because they, the, the gamma rays, of course, do not penetrate the Earth's atmosphere. Uh, and um, Which is a good thing. It is a good thing. That's right. And in uh, back in, I, th I think it was the 1970s, uh, spacecraft or satellites were launched in order to monitor the essentially uh, to, to keep an eye on the possibility of rogue nations doing nuclear tests in the atmosphere because a nuclear bomb in the atmosphere will give gamma rays and if you've got a way of detecting that then you know that somebody has broken a treaty or something of that sort and that's why these things were first put in place and they didn't find any in atmosphere nuclear tests but they did find all these things popping off in the sky mm. um, and they were a big puzzle for a long time but we now believe gamma ray bursts are caused by uh, actually the instant when a supernova uh, goes off when a massive star collapses to become a neutron star or a black hole but uh, the reason why it just doesn't look like an ordinary supernova is because these gamma rays are actually beamed out from the poles of the of the collapse. Uh, and the Earth has got to be in the right direction uh, to, to get one of these beams, high-intensity beams of radiation. Uh, and they are very high-intensity. So, intensity, so gravity, sorry, gamma ray bursts uh, for a long time were a puzzle. But uh, once people realized that they were probably coming from focused beams of radiation, then they, they became a bit more easy to understand. And as I said, that's what we now think they are. We think they are essentially uh, released, you know, maybe a, a supernova or something called a superluminous supernova, which is a high mass star as it becomes either a neutron star or a black hole. Now, that's the background. Yep. Uh, the story with this one, though, is that this is a gamma ray burst that was observed in January this year. Uh, gamma rays, like gravitational wave events, are given an, a number that signifies the, the day on which the event occurred. And this one is called GRB190114C. And that suggests it was the third to occur on the 14th of January 2019. <laughs> uh, and they're picked up by by spacecraft. That's how you detect them. Uh, NASA runs uh, two uh, gamma ray telescopes, Swift and Fermi, and there is one with a, I think it's a lovely name, this uh, spacecraft. It's called the Major Atmospheric Gamma Imaging Cherenkov Telescope, and that is an acronym that compresses to magic, which oh, is that's clever. Name. Yeah. <laughs> they don't often get the names right, but that one's a ripper. It is a ripper, yeah. So magic also detected uh, the this gamma ray burst. And uh, what was the surprise with it was that it had the highest energy in gamma rays ever observed, one tera electron volt. Um, now, that's actually, just to put that in context, the Large Hadron Collider collides particles at up to 14 tera electron volts. So it's it's less than the... Uh, the um, CERN um, LHC, the Large Hadron Collider, can can do, but it's this is pure energy. Effectively, it's, these are photons. They're photons of of gamma rays, and uh, mass for mass, um, one photon at one tera electron volts contains about a trillion times the energy as one photon of visible light. Whoa! So yeah, so it's big stuff. That would light your cigar. 
Yes, it would like your cigar as well as your face, probably. <laughs> put it in the way. So um, it's very high energy stuff, and that's something that has been predicted that we should see these high energy uh, gamma ray bursts, but um, they haven't been observed. And people wanted to observe them to find out what conditions actually produce these high energy bursts. Uh, if you if you've got uh, the collapsing object uh, as it as it turns into a neutron star or a black hole, this thing is emitting material uh, from its poles, and it turns out that to get this kind of energy of one tera electron volt, the the stuff must be coming out from the star at ninety nine point nine 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 percent of the speed of light, very very fast, and that then kind of gives you a, an idea uh, of where why this might have occurred, why we might be seeing this highly energetic object, because the process that turns that material coming out from the collapsing star into a beam of gamma rays is when that material interacts with the gas that surrounds the star, what we call the interstellar medium. And as the, as the, the beam of material being ejected from the star hits this, uh, you know, this surrounding gas, that is when the gamma rays are created and in highly directional uh, gamma rays. And that's, that's kind of the issue that has been raised by this observation uh, of, uh, of 190114C because the follow-up uh, observations that were made with the Hubble Space Telescope which kind of uh, zoomed in on it uh, once this, you know, once this uh, gamma ray had been, uh, gamma ray event had been uh, measured. The Hubble Space Telescope was pointed to the same direction in space, and it turns out that the gamma ray came from the middle of a pretty dense galaxy. It's a galaxy that actually has a high gas density at its nucleus. And the gamma ray burst came exactly from that nucleus. So uh, one of the authors of the uh, of the paper about the Hubble data, which is somebody who's at the uh, is actually at a university in the Netherlands. Uh, there's a quotation uh, from. Uh, from him, which says his name is Andrew Levan. Hubble's observations suggest that this particular burst was sitting in a very dense environment right in the middle of a bright galaxy five billion light years away. Wow, that's a long way. Uh, it is, but yeah, you know, we can still register the power of the event. Uh, he goes on to say this is really unusual and suggests that that might be why it produced this exceptionally powerful light. Mm. Um, and an another author uh, is quoted as saying scientists have been trying to observe very high energy emission from gamma ray bursts for a long time. This new observation is a vital step forward in our understanding of gamma ray bursts, their immediate surroundings, and just how matter behaves when it is moving at 99.999% of the speed of light. Um, blink and you miss it, I think, is the bottom line with that. But yes, yeah. it's great stuff. It's um, a really nice piece of um, you know, forensic science, because what's happened is people have used a, a whole array of different telescopes uh, to, to, first of all, detect the gamma ray burst and then follow up on it uh, to look at the environment from which that, uh, that radiation has come. So would it be fair to say that we really, even though we can create them if we want to blow somebody up, uh, we, 
we don't really know a heck of a lot about gamma ray bursts. Are they uh, are they sort of uh, in the black hole genre of unknown? Well, yes, they are. Although they're, they're much better known than than we you know than when they were first discovered thirty or forty years ago. Uh, I think the the mechanisms by which they're produced are now sort of reasonably well understood. There will be models made of the kind of, you know, this this burst of matter that is going at these what we call relativistic velocities. That's velocities that are not too far from the speed of light, um, basically piling into the material around the object, and that's where uh, the the radiation comes from. And I think that's a process that is fairly well modelled by physicists, but uh, you've got to observe it in order to, to know that it works. Now, uh, you, you said the, the naming of these is based on the date, uh, yeah. and this one is GRB190114C. So it sounds like these are happening at a fairly regular rate. Yes, they are. There's, um, they, they are relatively frequent, that's right, because that suggests that there were three on one day, which I think is probably the case. Gee whiz. That is, yeah, and when, when you compare that to uh, other events in space, that is... Um, that is quite unusual, yeah. I suppose. I mean, the other, I guess one thing that they compare with, um, and these are the fast radio bursts, which actually are in, seen in the radio spectrum. They're much faster than the gamma ray bursts. The fast radio bursts only last for a, a millisecond or so. Uh, also very highly energetic processes. Mm-hmm. Um, it is thought that when we've got our detection capabilities, um, you know, properly honed and properly uh, tuned up, we'll discover one of those every day as well. Uh, They've they've been fairly elusive until now, but we're really only just learning how to to detect them. I I suppose with all new discoveries, uh, once we've made the initial discovery, we start looking for more, and that's that's why we suddenly start finding ways to discover more and more of these things, like exo-asteroids and things like that, uh, which we've now found more than one of. Uh, the Space Doogie was the first, but we've had uh, another one since, as far as yes. I am aware. So, which is a um, mm, yeah. Plenty more to learn. But, uh, yeah, this has been rather fascinating. I, I can't get over the uh, the, the speed of um, the burst. It's just uh, it's, that, that's incredible, given that we're going to be talking about um, the speed of light and the age of light uh, shortly. You're listening to Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with the great Fred Watson. Space Nuts. And Fred, I'm, I'm very pleased to see that our push towards 1,000 followers on uh, YouTube is gaining momentum. I, I actually had a, um, um, uh, a message on my Instagram account from uh, another podcast asking if uh, we would like to um, work with each other to get our numbers up. So um, I, I, I basically became a follower of their YouTube channel and they've become a follower of ours and we're having a race to 1,000. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and we're winning. And I'm not going to tell you who it is because then you'll probably follow them too. And I'm, <laughs> I'm very competitive. But we've got uh, 721 subscribers on our YouTube channel now, which is impressive, fantastic. So uh, find us on YouTube and uh, subscribe to our podcast there. You can listen to everything we've ever done in our entire lives from birth or maybe just episodes of this podcast. I'm not sure which. But, uh, it's um, yeah, it's great that we're getting a, a big following there. And, uh, and thank you if you're a YouTube follower. So many platforms these days, Fred. I can't keep up with it. Uh, but 
one thing I can keep up with is our questions. No, we can't keep up with those either. But we're getting we're getting uh, a few back in here now. And this one comes from Tony, uh, listening to Space Time today um, with Stuart Gary, who played your discussion about tests and the discovery of exoplanets showing orbital resonances in inter-ratios of 3.5 and 2.1. Fred mentioned Neptune and Pluto in our solar system. My understanding is that all planets exhibit these ratios, and he gives the, the list, but I'll, I'll just mention a few. Um, Earth, Venus, 8 to 13. Venus, Mercury, 23 to 9, which is a weak resonance, apparently. Uh, Uranus and Neptune, 51 to 26, almost 2 to 1, and so on. Um, also, this may. Uh, you know, my understanding is that these resonances focus to stabilise orbits over vast time spans. Also, this may be a mechanism for driving the solar cycles as the planets line up. What are your thoughts? So, on the, that last point about uh, you know, if uh, as planets line up in cycles, um, I don't think this that has any effect on the sun itself. Uh, it, it, you know, the sun um, orbits something we call the barycenter of the solar system, which is effectively the centre of mass of the solar system, uh, and doesn't care too much about planets aligning. So I think the solar cycles are much more intimately connected with the magnetic properties of the sun and the, the natural cycles within that. Uh, but just a, a, another comment on these resonances. It is a great topic. And uh, you know the the point is that um, you if you've got two objects in orbit around a, another body, um, often you will get them settling into a resonance where one goes round three times for the other going round two or something of that sort. That's uh -huh. actually the situation between Pluto and Neptune. Um, uh, Pluto goes round twice in three orbits of Neptune. So what it means is that every three orbits of Neptune, it finds Pluto in the same place. And um, that essentially the gravitational uh, effect of that are as uh, they're, they're self-correcting in the sense that that is a very stable resonance. Um, it's one that lasts a long time, millions of years, if not billions of years. Uh, however, many of these resonance, resonances aren't stable. Um, sometimes they they actually, you know, you get momentum being swapped from one to another, one object to another, because of the resonance that actually destroys the resonance. Um, so it, the, 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 there are two different cases here, and it, it really depends on the exact parameters as to when, you know, which are stable and which are unstable. Um, the, the, probably the easiest unstable one to envisage is a resonance of one-to-one, -one. because a resonance of one-to-one -one means that you've got two objects sharing the same orbit. Mm. Uh, they're both in the same orbit, and that actually uh, essentially causes an instability that uh, basically um, uh, it, it probably it would eject, you know, it would eject the um, perhaps the smaller body. Um, it's It's the... It's that process that lets large objects like Jupiter uh, clear their 
clear their vicinity. Although it has to be said that Jupiter does have many one-to-one -one, uh, companions. Uh, they're called the Trojan asteroids. These are asteroids that orbit 60 degrees ahead of and 60 degrees behind Jupiter. But um, they're, they're in stable positions. They're at what are called the Lagrange points. If you've got objects that, that aren't centered on the Lagrange points, then they'll probably get kicked out. So, you know, a planet like Jupiter would have, would have kicked out most of the things sharing its orbit. Jupiter's a bully. <laughs> that's that's true. So um, yeah, so I've always found um, orbital resonance is an interesting topic, uh, which is why we you know we picked up on it. Uh, it's very interesting to look at just the asteroid belt, for example, in uh, around um, you know between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter, and you find that um, there are there are gaps in the asteroid belts. They've been known for many, many decades. Actually, they're called the Kirkwood gaps. And they correspond to resonances with Jupiter. So they're places where asteroids have been thrown out of, of resonance uh, and distributed elsewhere in the asteroid belt. So some very interesting processes that go on. And, uh, you know, um, basically many thanks to Tony for raising it. Cause yeah, I'm, wonderful question. It, it makes you sort of uh, realise how small we are when there's such massive influence over so, such a great distance. I mean, I don't know what the guy around the corner is doing, but the um, <laughs> but that's, that's how people think. I mean, we don't know what's going on around the corner of our street, but uh, in, yeah. in, in a universal well, sense, there's so much going on that, that interacts over vast yeah. distances. You don't know what's going on around the corner, but Pluto knows what Neptune's doing. Yes, exactly what I'm saying. Yeah, it's fascinating. Thank you, yeah. Tony, for the question. Now let's uh, move on to our next one. This comes from uh, Bart in Amsterdam. Oh, I love Amsterdam. What a lovely place. Uh, so much fun. Uh, hi, guys. Thanks for all the knowledge about astronomy you're spreading. Um, Fred's doing that. I'm just pretending I understand. Uh, I've got two questions. As I understand it, uh, if one would travel with the speed of light, time would stop in your experience and you wouldn't get any older. So consequently, as light travels at the speed of light, does that imply it's actually exactly the same age as when it was formed? And if you would give light a consciousness, would the background noise in the Big Bang that re reaches us today consider this moment the same moment that the Big Bang occurred? Does light have an age at all? Do I make any sense? Yes. Uh, the second question is about the expansion of space. Does space expand everywhere, also in our solar system and also in my house, or let's say um, our own bodies? Uh, in other words, do I get bigger even though I'm on a diet right now? <laughs> Uh, leave the jokes to me, Bart. But, yeah, good question. Uh, that second one we've answered before, but we'll do that again because it's such a fascinating thing. But um, speed of light. How old is light? Okay. Um, um, Bart, you shouldn't just give up on the jokes. Your jokes are actually better than Andrew's. So it's, it's good, good I've still got the magic button here, Fred. Don't forget it. <laughs> um, uh, look, the, the thing about this is that... Um, Time stops for, a beam, for something traveling at the speed of light. To an outside observer, time has stopped. That's the bottom line. But, but you, to the light, you it's... would not stop aging, I imagine. If you, the... if you were capable of flying at the speed of light, you would still age. It's yeah, just, you would. It's just everything around you wouldn't. No, that's right. That's exactly. If, as you are perceived from the outside, uh, your outside observers would not see you aging. 
mm. uh, because you would because of time dilation you would look to the outside observer as though time has stopped for you but to you as a particle of light or whatever else is traveling at the speed of light time just marches on so the answer is no uh, you know um, light would not mix up the, the the background noise of the big bang with the the noise of um, teacups banging today or something like that it it's it's basically just our uh, the 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 person observing from the outside who sees that apparent stoppage of time i don't know whether that explains it but that's what's happening yeah i mean it's all about time, time is is a it, it can be really complicated if you think about it too much is what i find with time um, and we're exactly. all we're all used to time as we know it, but time yeah. isn't always as we know it. And and as we've experienced with uh, experiments on Earth, time is a variable, even at a minuscule level. But it is it is it a, I mean, even even in your own body, from head to toe, you're aging at a different rate. It's just minuscule. Yes, that's right. That's because of the gravitational time dilation. Mm. Uh, what what Bart's talking about here is. Um, it's basically the time dilation because because of the speed you're travelling at, rather than uh, rather than the gravitational field that you're experiencing. But yeah, it's um, the answer is the same. It, it, it's it's all to do with your what we call a reference frame, whether you're looking uh, as the stationary observer or where, whether you are the moving observer. And the moving observer just sees time going by at the same old rate. Yes, and that includes the particle of light. I suppose uh, his question about um, the light of the Big Bang not being any older than when the Big Bang occurred is a, is a good question. And, and uh, I, I suppose I can sort of move across into another realm. Is that, does that light still exist or is light, just like everything else, it, um, it, it's created and dies and is renewed by various episodes in the universe? Yes, that's a good answer to a really dumb question. <laughs> um, the, uh, so the light of the Big Bang, of course, we still see it as the cosmic microwave background radiation. But that light, when it hits something, like the dish of a, or the sensor in a radio receiver, is converted into a different kind of energy, so it does cease to exist. Mm. But um, it's very old light. In fact, the, the light of the Big Bang is the, is the oldest thing we can actually see. It's been on its way for 13.8 billion years. So it's that old. But not, all, old. but all, but not all light is that old. Uh, no, that's right. Yeah, um, the light that's coming from my screen to my eyes now is really quite recent. <laughs> it's only very young. About, it's about um, two billionths of a second old. That's yeah. right. That's when the it, point I was life. trying to make. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, um, second question from from Bart, which is, as you said, Andrew, we've we've certainly looked at before. Um, yes, the expansion of space is really only visible on very large scales. Uh, so, you know, in on the scale of galaxies or solar systems, uh, they are the space is expanding, but the, these things are held together. In basically the current form by gravity principally and as far as your body's concerned um, the space that your body occupies is getting larger at a very very minuscule level 
but the you know the atomic forces that hold your body together are far more important and that's why even though you're on a diet right now perhaps because of your the fact that you're on a diet right now but you're not getting any bigger you're certainly not getting any bigger because of the expansion of the universe we we don't live long enough to get torn apart by the expansion of the universe basically but uh, your house is moving away from the neighbors and which is probably a good thing if they don't like you but um, it will take a very long time for it to move an inch like uh, it would yes uh, well in fact it never will because the the force holding the earth together is is going to keep it where it is yeah exactly there you are uh, thank you Bart for the joke and uh, your wonderful questions and thank you to everybody who's uh, listened this week and thank you for your support and uh, keep those cards and letters rolling in. Of course, if you want some bonus material, we will be providing that um, bit by bit on our Patreon account, patreon.com slash space nuts. If you'd like to hear more, you can do it uh, that way. Uh, Fred, as always, thank you so much. It's been a great pleasure. Yeah, it's been a pleasure to talk to you too, Andrew. And well, that's I a change, but anyway. The, <laughs> I look forward to the next time. <laughs> All right, thanks, Fred. <laughs> Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large, and from me, Andrew Dunkley. Thanks again. Catch you next time on another edition of Space Nuts. Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes and Stitcher or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Sites.com.